without a documented sales process that all are trained on, you can't measure efficacy. You won't deliver maximum value to your customers. Your salespeople will be less effective and your organization will be less effective. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. So it's really easy sometimes in the business development process to focus on ourselves, especially when we know exactly how good our product is or how amazing our customer service is and how skilled our engineers or technical professionals are. And while all of that will work to our advantage once a new customer relationship has begun, it can actually work against us in marketing and sales. And that's because our buyers are focused on their issues and their problems and their goals, not our products and all the bells and whistles that come with them. Your prospects are wherever they are in their own buyer's journeys, and it's our job to meet them there, to listen, to be their guide. My guest today is a leader in the manufacturing space that gets this more than most who I've talked to. And he's put these concepts into practice inside the manufacturing organization that he leads, focusing on things like total cost of ownership or TCO and overall equipment effectiveness or OEE to drive sales conversations that are customer centric instead of focusing on his own products, features, and benefits. So on that note, let me take a moment to introduce Kevin Roach. Kevin Roach is the president and CEO of the automated packaging equipment manufacturer, Harpak Olma. Kevin is a senior level technology executive with proven global leadership and distinguished performance in operations and sales, as well as financial and general management. He's also experienced in strategic planning, research and development, manufacturing, and marketing across multiple industries. Earlier in his career, Kevin led Honeywell Intelligrated, a software division of Honeywell focused on warehouse execution software. During his tenure, he reinvented the company's approach to sales, market development, product development, quality, professional services, and investment strategies. Kevin successfully positioned Intelligrated as a global leader in integrated systems and software solutions for the supply chain, and also led the company's breakthrough initiative for the Connected Distribution Center. Kevin has also served as Executive Vice President and General Manager of Epicor Software, Executive Vice President and General Manager of Activant Solutions, President and CEO of Rockwell Software, and Vice President of GE Industrial Software. A proponent of Lean and Six Sigma and certified GE Six Sigma Black Belt, Kevin is passionate about building company cultures focused on continuous improvement. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, Kevin, quite the professional journey you've had up to this point. Is there anything from the bio I just read that you'd like to elaborate on in terms of what led you to where you are today at Harpac Alma? Yeah, it's interesting, Joe. I began my career actually as an engineer at a company that was the precursor to Harpac Alma, a company called TW Cutter, founded by the same family that founded Harpac Alma. 
And like Carpac Alma, TW Cutter was a company that provided automated packaging lines, lines that were intended to produce high-speed packaging for the food, medical, and industrial markets. From there, I did found a couple of my own companies, one that led me to GE because they ultimately acquired it. Had a lot of fun at Rockwell Automation. What a great company there as well. And as you mentioned, a number of private equity gigs where we were positioning companies for growth and ultimately for sale. So I guess you could say I've come kind of full circle some 35 years later here back at home at Harpac Ulmer for our next digital transformation and growth to help our customers grow. Awesome. Well, that's that's all great stuff. You're actually, I think the in the last four episodes I've I've done your the second that has been a part of Rockwell at some point. So it's that's a name that you know seems to come up in just about every other conversation I have with a manufacturer for good reason. So it's a great company and of course a partner of ours because the machines we produce now are very Rockwell centric. So we produce machines with nearly 100% Rockwell controls, components, and software along with our other partner, PTC, who is a tight partner with Rockwell Automation as well. You may have read a couple of years ago, Rockwell invested uh, over a billion dollars into PTC and and now it's about a 10% stakeholder and Rockwell CEO is on the board of PTC, Blake Moret. Well, Kevin, you are officially the first client of Gorilla76 that I've interviewed on this show. So we've, we've been working together for a bit now and I handpicked you because you guys run a really tight ship at Harpac. Your team is exceptional. I've seen firsthand how well-structured and disciplined both your marketing and sales teams are. And you and I were talking recently about how, how many manufacturing organizations don't really have a well-defined sales playbook. Instead, you get leadership teams tending to you know, tell their sales teams, here's the product, now go get them. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why this is a problem when that seems to be the approach. It's a great question. And it still amazes me, Joe, that I'm going to guess that Nearly half the companies out there of various sizes, it's not just the small ones, it's mediums and it's large companies, simply don't have a sales process. And that means that it's going to effectively lessen the efficacy of their sales team, their customers, it's going to impact customer satisfaction. And in the end, it's going to limit growth and success for the company. If you rely on every single salesperson to make it up as they go, you're going to get tens or hundreds of variations of what you're trying to achieve with customers, which isn't going to feel good with customers, and it's not going to be effective. If you don't have a defined process with metrics that you can't measure, you can't improve those metrics. So we're a continuous improvement-oriented culture. We're always seeking improvement to deliver more value to our customers. We follow very rigorous process methods to constantly improve things. So I would say simply put, without a documented sales process that all are trained on, you can't measure efficacy, you won't deliver maximum value to your customers, your salespeople will be less effective, and your organization will be less effective. So in the end, you must have a good good process rigor to to scale and grow a business. Let, Let me give you an example. Let's say that you were going to go have heart surgery, and you had Dr. A and Dr. B that you could choose from. Dr. A has a very rigorous process, and he does it the same way every single time. It's been tested and refined and improved, and the outcomes are amazing. Dr. B has a bit of a rusty scalpel on his utility knife belt and says, let's go. I think I can get this done pretty well. Who are you going to pick? Somebody that has a refined process with proven outcomes or somebody that's going to wing it? I think it's Dr. A in this point, in this case. Yeah, I think so. That's a pretty funny you bring up that example, actually, because 
I actually had open heart surgery at the age of eight. And so very relevant. <laughs> and I'm hoping my, my parents chose Dr. A. I assume they did. But. <laughs> Let's hope so. It seems like you're doing well. So yeah, I think so. Choice. I think so. No, it's a great example though. And, and I think you're exactly right. And it's, it's the same way manufacturing organizations need to be thinking and, and, you know, some of them may not be. So, so Kevin, I was wondering along those lines, I know that you, that Harpac Alma has designed a sales process that aligns very intentionally with the buyer's journey. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the stages of that process to provide some context. Yeah, I'd love to. We've been working on this now for a little more than two and a half years. And I would say we're probably 90% there. So we're, we feel good about the progress. Let me start by saying the first thing we did is to interview and understand our customers' buying journey. So how do they go about buying things? Rather than how do we want to sell, we want to understand how they buy so that we could match our selling process to the buying process. So we've developed a very buying buyer-centric process for selling. As I mentioned, we interviewed a bunch of our customers. We identified what stages they go through as they're contemplating purchases of new capital equipment. I think that's incredibly important for everybody to start there. Start with who you're working with. And then we develop the stages. So let me talk about the stages. We have five stages. And again, we see these as the buyer's path that we need to follow and assist and help them be successful. And I'll use buying an automobile as an example to kind of relate to what our buyers are going through and, and the things that happen during the different stages. The first stage is recognition. That's when you say, hmm, I may need a new piece of equipment. In this case, the car. My car has been, you know, getting a little rattly. The AC is getting weak. One of the windows is busted. Maybe I really got to let this, this puppy go to the graveyard and, and get a new car. That recognition phase is when you're determining, do you have an, a, a need? Do you have a problem to solve? Do you have an opportunity to pursue? Do you have a, an issue to avoid? So recognition is the first stage. Once you exit the recognition stage, you enter the next stage, which is, okay, I recognize I need a new car. The next one is determining needs. So I've recognized I have a need. Now let's determine what those needs are. And I should mention in these first two stages, our selling team isn't selling at all. They're understanding, they're probing, they're educating. They're not trying to sell anything. It's too early to be selling. This is about understanding and, and ultimately being able to guide our customers to their best outcome based on our expertise. So determining needs is where you say, okay, do I want a truck or do I want a car? Do I need a four-door or a two-door? Do I care about a convertible? Do I need a minivan? So determining needs is where you start collecting the requirements ultimately for the piece of equipment that you want to buy. Once you get through determining needs, you enter evaluating options. And this is pretty natural to us as humans, right? Do I need something? Yeah, I do. Okay, what do I want? Well, I have some choices. When I look at the choices, I then evaluate those options. Well, how much does a Tesla cost versus something else? And can I really get that cool electric vehicle? Or you know, what do I really need? And then I evaluate the options. Once I take a look at all my options, I narrow them down to a couple of key choices, maybe the two or three top op opportunities that seem to meet my requirements. And once I evaluate those, I start resolving concerns. Resolving concerns being the fourth stage. I'm like, all right, I've got a good choice in car A and car B. Which one do I really want and why? I resolve some concerns. The warranty wasn't quite as good in this one as that one. Work with the other guy. Can you extend the warranty? Then ultimately the final stage is selection. So those are the five stages. Recognition, determining needs, evaluating options, resolving concerns, 
and then making a selection. And something that's important that a lot of companies, if they do have a sales process, don't do, and I highly recommend, is for a prospect or an opportunity to move through the pipe from recognition ultimately to selection, we require that the prospect executes an activity before we move them from stage to stage. So we don't allow our salespeople to say, ooh, 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 I just had a great meeting. They're in the selection stage. We're going to win the deal. It's like, wait a minute. You haven't gone through all the, all the, all the toll gates to get there. And so every single stage, a customer needs to do something to be, to be moved to the next stage. And why is that important? Because if you let salespeople do it, they will have misalignment because they didn't get confirmation from an activity from the prospect. And you will have sales cycle elongation, which means your cycle times are going to go up and your win rates are going to go down. Your costs are going to go up. So what's the matter with that? Higher costs, less wins, and longer time to do that. So it's really important that you have a prospect perform an activity before you move them from stage to stage. That has been very effective for us. I think that's really smart and, and what a great structured process. How, how did you guys get here? How, did it, how, did it, how long did it take to, to develop a process like this? And you know, I'm just kind of curious what kind of pain you went through to arrive where you are today with something that's so disciplined? Well, it's a good question. And I wish I could say I invented all this cool stuff myself, but I didn't. We worked with a company back in around 2008 when I was active in an Epicor, a company called uh, SBC, Sales Benchmark Index. And there's a bunch of, sorry, SBI. There's a bunch of companies like that that specialize in sales process consulting. And we hired them and we hired them for two years. And they worked with our leadership team. They helped us develop the metrics. They actually did ride-alongs with our salespeople to talk to customers, to understand the buying journey. So we were quite scientific about it. And because we didn't have a great sales process, we thought it would be great to bring in people that have done it over and over and over again. So that's where we learned it and developed it. And since then, I've taken those learnings to each company I've been to and tweaked them for the market because every sales process isn't the same. It really depends on the market, the buyer's journey, the equipment, B2B versus B2C, et cetera. Something that really stands out from everything you just said is how customer-centric you are in your sales approach. And you take the time to, to understand what those people care about, to interview them, to collect insights from their mouths. And I just see this step being overlooked. So many assumptions being made in the sales process, so much focus on this is what we do and this is what we sell. And I think that you've been really smart to start with the customer, what they care about, what they're telling you and what their buyer's journey looks like and, and build around that. You know, Joe, everybody falls into the trap of thinking we know it all. You know, we've been doing our job for so long. We know exactly why we lost this deal or exactly why we won that deal. And it's amazing how often we're wrong. We're recently working with another firm called DoubleCheck that specializes in win-loss analysis. And they're going through each of our product lines and the insights that we're getting from customer interviews. What they do, by the way, is they, they, they call customers and go spend a 30 to 45 minute session interviewing them about why did you select Harp Alcoma or why didn't you select Harp Alcoma? How was their sales process? How was their team? What do you think about their equipment? How about their ease of doing business or their reputation? And it's amazing the things you learn. One of them that was pretty interesting and, and should have been obvious is 
how very important service and support is to people. It was universally the number one thing that came out of nearly every conversation. And we kind of take it for granted. We've got a great sales, great sales team, but a, an incredible service team spread out throughout the country, a team of about 60 people. And we just get used to knowing that they're good and forget how important it is. And the, the learning there and the insight we have is we need to put that more up front when we're in these selling stages to make sure that we're emphasizing how good we are at that, how important it is to them and how it keeps them up and running. So that was a good learning. There were many others, but you always think you know it all and you almost never do. Yeah, you're right on the money there. And I've seen your double check report, given that we our companies work together and it's exceptional. I, I would encourage companies to look at what double check's doing because the insights that come out of that are at the absolute exact things that should be fueling your marketing and sales strategy. Yeah, they're a great company. Like yours, we've teamed with them quite intimately. We're we kind of think of your company and their company as part of our team. You know, we're very transparent with everything, as you know. So it, it really enhances our ability to do a good job by having people like you and DoubleCheck and others support us with specialized skills. Well, I appreciate that. For everybody listening, I gave Kevin a discount on next month's bill to say that. So it was a big <laughs> just, one. Too. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kevin, you and I have known each other for a little over a year or so now. And one of the things I've heard you talk about numerous times, or a couple of things I've, I've heard you talk about are one, OEE, or overall equipment effectiveness, and two, TCO, or total cost of ownership. A good percentage of our audience here are machine builders or some sort of equipment manufacturer. And these, con- these are concepts that really, in most cases, should be front and center in their sales conversations with prospects. But I know that's not always the case. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about by- why both OEE and TCO really need to be a part of the sales conversation. Absolutely. And, and like a good sales process, I think this is an area that many manufacturers excel at some are okay at it and some totally ignore it. So it's, it's again, it's a mixed bag, but there are excellent companies that focus on this and, and all the way to ones that don't even know what OE stands for. And, and as you said, OE is an acronym for overall equipment effectiveness. It has basically three parts. It has availability, which is the percentage of a scheduled time that the machine's able to operate. So it's basically uptime. Is the machine able to run? The next is performance. It's designed to run at 400 packages a minute. Are you getting 400 packages a minute out of the machine? Or is it a little bit slower than we promised as when we sold the machine? And that'll make a big difference. So availability is uptime. Performance is speed. The next is quality. Is every single package, in this case, because we make packaging lines, is every single package perfect? Or do some of them have leakers? Or was some of the registered artwork not perfect? Ultimately, those non-perfect packages are scrap. The way the math works is it's like a rolled throughput yield calculation. You take the percentage availability times the percentage of performance times the percentage of quality, and you get a fraction that is a percentage of the perfect number of 100%. World-class OEE is about 85%. And OEE at 85% is pretty tough to get. The best can get it. And it also depends on how complicated the line is because the more elements in a line, they all contribute and it's a serial calculation. So if you have 20 elements, even if they're all at 99%, you're going to take a big hit on OEE. Let me give you an example in my world of a packaging machine OEE. 
And we do often achieve 85% on lines. Not always, but often. Depends on a lot of other things. So let's take this example. Why does why do I care about OEE? Well, I just sold the system to produce packages at 400 packages a minute. This particular company is going to run three seven-hour shifts a day, six days a week, 50 weeks a year. So a lot of runtime. So total gross production, if they were 100% OEE, would be 151.2 million packages. It's a lot of packages. However, because we know no one gets 100% OEE and 85% is world-class, if they got 85%, they would produce a net of 128 million.5 packages. That's really good. Keep in mind, that's world-class. If that same system that I just gave you the examples of 85% ran only at 83, and keep in mind, 83 is darn good too. But if it only missed that 85% world-class by just two percentage points, they would lose 3 million packages a year. 3 million packages a year. This particular company sells the product for about a dollar each, and they have a 35% gross margin, which is pretty normal. So two points of OEE just cost you $3 million of revenue and a $1 million of profit. That's why OEE matters. And you could be in a position where if you're not producing at the rate you thought you were, even if it isn't 85%, maybe you planned around 80% and you're running 70, and I've seen it as low as 40, then you're going to be shorting orders and you're going to lose customers because you can't deliver. So there's immense impact if you can't operate tightly. Does that make sense on the OEM? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so if all of a sudden you can start framing your sales conversations around this with a, a simple mathematical model to paint a picture for somebody, I imagine it's really going to resonate. It really does. And we believe in OEE so much, we've outfitted all of our machines to monitor and report their OEE every day. So at the end of a shift, our machines email a report to us and our customers, and it says, okay, the, the OEE for this shift was 83%. And of the reasons that you had downtime, we collect every single fault and we capture and count the frequency of that fault. We measure the duration of each fault and we accumulate in categories all the faults and the time that they contributed to downtime. We then sort those in a Pareto type fashion and we issue the top 10 contributors to downtime right off the machine every day. Why is that great? because it gives you actionable insights. Okay, number one, here's my number one item that caused me downtime. It was 100 minutes, all right? I'm gonna focus on that. And ultimately, we have our techs reviewing these reports every day and calling customers and saying, you know, you're having a lot of these faults. Typically, we find this is the cause, you may wanna look at this. And we work with them to bring their OEE up into the right over time. And what happens is once you kill the number one reason, now you work on number two and number three, and new reasons emerge. So it's a way to continuously improve and get your OEE up and to the right. Yeah, that's great stuff. How do you bring that into a sales conversation with a new prospect who you're not yet working with, Kevin? What we do is we have a couple of models, tools that we built for the sales force so that they can show the impact of OEE. And we let them model different lines and there's a lot of user inputs that we have a discussion about. So that a lot of people are resistant to giving you all the data, but if you have a model and you can show, here's how our equipment works, let's plug in some of your assumptions and actuals with some of your equipment and let's show you the financial impact on your operation. And then they start to loosen up when they see you know, how big it can be and how impactful it can be on their, on their P&L. So we build tools, spreadsheets and the like to, that allow our salespeople to engage in a conversation in a friendly way that 
they can get some instant results and, and see if they can take it to the next step. Let, let's go back to the second part of your question, which was TCO. Equally important and really more of an umbrella than even OEE, but a little bit more difficult to measure. So TCO is an acronym for total cost of ownership. What's my total cost for owning and operating this piece of equipment? It's a financial estimate intended to help a buyer understand direct and indirect costs. Too often buyers just look at acquisition price. They don't look at all of the other things that matter. So TCO not only considers OEE, but it considers other costs like training costs, spare parts costs, service call costs, everything associated with running and producing, in my case, packages, everything that is considered. So you can say, in five years or every year, this is my real cost for this. Now, I'll give you another example. We'll go back to the automobile. If you've got a car that is, say, $20,000 to buy, and another one is $30,000, which is the better one to buy? You don't have enough information to answer that because you want to be total cost of ownership thoughtful. So if I probe and learn a little bit more about these two cars, I find that the car that's $20,000 requires the oil to be changed every 30 minutes. Now, that's a little bit dramatic. And the other car, car B, I can change the oil once a year. Now, all of a sudden, I can look at my total cost and find out that I'm paying $5,000 a year in oil changes on car A and only $50 on car B. Over a five or 10-year period, that car that was 50% more expensive from an acquisition perspective is 50% less expensive to own overall over the time life of that asset. So we, we share this too with our customers, by the way. You asked about like, how do we bring it into a, a sales cycle? We've built a TCO model that allows us to work with the customer and look at their operation. And their operations are always different. So they have different pieces of equipment that is feeding our equipment. And we'll have downstream equipment where we're doing case packing and palletizing. And there's different amounts of labor on the line. Anytime a machine pauses or isn't running, you have what we call stranded labor. So you've got bodies standing around being paid, not producing. TCO contemplates that, including contemplating the need to add overtime or extra shifts to make up for the shortfall of your targeted production output. So TCO is kind of the next level of above OEE, where you zoom out and you look at the whole picture of owning and operating that machine from acquisition to retirement. So Kevin, for those listening who are thinking to themselves, man, we really need to overhaul the way we're going to market with our sales team. Where would you point them in terms of you know, resources for starting to make some changes? So if, if you don't have some folks in house that understand these concepts, I, I would recommend that you get a specialist like we did back about 10, 12 years ago to help you through the journey. I can give you some highlights, things that I've learned along this journey. Again, it starts with understanding your buyer's journey, your buyer's path. What do they go through? What's going to be comfortable for them? You don't want to be misaligned. I'll give you an example. Let's say I go on the web and I look at mortgage rates and I'm just kind of curious. Maybe I want to refinance my, my house and save a little money, interest rates are down. And I just look at it and then I close my computer. Next day, some dude from Rocket Mortgage knocks on my door with a package to close on the mortgage. I'm going to go, who are you? What are you doing here? I'm not at that stage. I was just poking around. I'm, I'm, I'm in the recognition phase and you're trying to close me. It, very uncomfortable. So you want to understand the buyer's journey. You also want to understand that most companies now have buying teams, not buyers. It used to be back in the day, 
you had one person that you went into, you brought your catalogs in and uh, you talked about equipment and you, you sold the deal. Today, the average buying team, depending on the industry, is five or six people. And they're made up of different departments. There's engineering, operations, sometimes marketing, could be finance. So you need to also understand that there is a buying team, not a buying individual. And you need to understand the personas of those buying individuals, the individuals on the buying team, because they have different wins that they're seeking. Some are looking for the sexiest package in the world. Others are looking for the lowest cost or the smallest footprint in a factory because they don't have a lot of space. So it's really important to identify the different people that are influencing the buying decision. What are the personal wins they're looking for and how do you address and satisfy those wins? So I think it's really important to understand that there's a buying team and that they all have different needs and different wants and you better pay attention to all of them. I mentioned this when you asked me about our sales process, but I think the next thing you want to do is once you identify the buyer's journey and you set your own stages, make sure that you're causing a prospect to make to execute an activity before you move them. Don't let the sales team just move people through the process because they're feeling good about stuff. Salespeople have rose-colored glasses because they have to. They get more no's than yeses every day, so they have to always be optimistic. And that optimism influences the process and distorts it, frankly. It causes the cycle to elongate. It causes the win rates to go down and ultimately for the sales team to be less successful. Additionally, I'd say, make sure you pay attention to any silos in your organization that are causing friction or a lack of harmony. And I'm talking about sales and marketing in this case. All too often, the sales and marketing teams are going at the market in different ways that aren't coordinated whatsoever. You have to have unified, identical positioning, branding, value props, and that sort of thing. And you can't be having the teams targeting different accounts and with different tools and different messages. It just confuses everyone. You know, in the end, it's there are two sides of the same coin. To get that together, they need to be linked and synchronized. And we do that. And we didn't always do it. We have our sales and marketing teams meet all the time and we have common goals and strategies. That's a, another thing that I would suggest. If there was a if there was a reshare button I could be pushing on everything you just said, I'd be, you know, hammering it home because I think everybody, everybody out there who's leading manufacturing organizations needs to hear this. These are the things we talk about all the time and the things that I see broken 90% of the time with companies like you guys. And I'd love seeing that you've you've thought this stuff through, you've figured it out, you've put processes in place, and you're you're reaping the benefits of that. So very cool. Kevin, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to add to the conversation today? There is, Joe, especially for the audience here. We build equipment and equipment evolves over time and gets smarter and better and more efficient. I think it's important for companies like us and some of the folks out in your audience is to make sure they have a really cohesive strategy. I think it's important to set a five or 10 year goal of where you're going And we did that ourselves, and we identified a four-stage strategy that we thought would really excite our customers to know where they're going. Keep in mind, capital equipment lasts anywhere between 10 and 20 years. So the machines that you're getting from us today are going to be around for a long, long time. Our strategy is is what we call smart connected machines, and it is an evolution where our machines will get better every day. An example I'll use here, coincidentally enough, is going to be another car example. I don't know why I'm on the car examples today, 
but dumb unconnected machines is what cars used to be. You would buy a car and it never got better. It never got better gas mileage over time. It didn't have better braking, didn't have better safety, didn't have new features. You bought it, you used it, it died, you threw it away. Tesla came out with smart connected vehicles where every day that passes, there's an opportunity for a software push that's gonna improve its safety, its range, its feature set, that sort of thing. And that's our approach with our machines. So we're building smart connected machines that are gonna evolve even after you buy them, they're gonna to continue to get better. Then this is where the strategy comes in. Because they're buying machines that last 10 to 20 years, I believe a strategy that shows them how this machine is going to be better in five years and 10 years than it was when they bought it is very compelling. Our four-stage strategy starts with, first of all, replatforming our machines with Rockwell Automation controls and software. And we've completed that. Next, we have augmented reality for training and for diagnostics. Many of our customers in the food industry, especially, have 30, 40, 50% employee turnover. So they're always training new people. Augmented reality with the use of iPads or HoloLenses and other things is a game changer in human productivity, outcomes, safety, and asset management. So we see 30 to 50% productivity gains by using AR for training and diagnostics. And we're in three pilots right now. From there, we're looking at collecting massive amount, amounts of data or data lakes so that we can apply machine learning and AI. And then ultimately we're able to tie the machine control system into the AR. So we can float information in the air around the machine, telling them what the seal temperature is, or if there's a problem, how to fix it, guiding them physically through the machine in 3D. So I think setting a compelling vision is nothing but helpful to enhancing the sales team's ability to tell the story and have it be compelling to know that my competitor's machine is 10 years, it's gonna be as dumb as you bought it yesterday. Mine is going to be 10 years evolved at that, that point. So that's the other part of our story I want to share. Oh, that's great. I love it. Kevin, this was an awesome conversation. So much to be learned from what you shared today. So I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's my pleasure. Very happy to do so, Joe. Where, where can uh, our audience get in touch with you? How's the best way for them to learn more about Harpac Alma as well? Yeah, so please visit our website, which is harpac-alma.com or contact us at email at info at harpacalma.com or give us a call 508-884-2500. That sounds great. And Kevin, I imagine people can find you on LinkedIn and, and connect there. For sure. Great. Well, great conversation. And you know, I'm just really glad that, that we got to do this. I think some of the topics we touched on today are things that manufacturers are thinking about and some of them may be embracing it, but you know, others I know aren't because I talk to a lot of manufacturing people. So a lot of good nuggets here. And Kevin, once again, thanks for, for joining me. My pleasure, Joe. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>